0: Our God and Father, as we set our hearts upon these Scriptures, precious and powerful, living words as you have described them, words that tell us of Jesus the Christ, the Creator of all that is. There's not one thing in this universe that He has not formed by His powerful Word, even in a week where... Many in the world have been captured by the first photographs of a black hole that exists 57 million light years away. Fuzzy images of something that the Lord Jesus himself has created and upheld by his powerful word through the ages. And yet for many of us, Jesus is more of an interesting figure from history. Someone who intrigues us from time to time and while at other times is wholly absent from our thoughts. And in the scriptures that we have read, He is revealed not only as the sovereign creator, but as the sovereign King. And as we begin this Holy Week together, and we open your word, how we pray, Lord God, that you would open our eyes to see Jesus as he is, not as we have imagined him to be in our best moments of creative thought, not as we hope that he might be, as we exercise our souls, sometimes out of their weakness and confusion, other times out of our own curiosity. Our prayer is that the Lord Jesus Christ would be revealed in all of His power, in all of His commanding glory, and that every heart here would see the absolute necessity of bowing before Him in our entirety, of worshiping Him alone, and serving Him out of humility and joy of reverence and fear. Your word tells us that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. Though there have been a thousand powerful leaders in the age of history, though there have been a thousand religious leaders who have sought to build and establish a following, there is only one King and Lord over all and that is Jesus. So Lord Jesus, by the presence and power of your spirit, would you establish your dominion in the heart of every person here today. And wherever your gospel is preached, we ask that you would be exalted and known and loved and served. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With the arrival of spring and the beginning of barley harvest, Jerusalem was beginning to swell with visitors from far and wide. It was the week of Passover and the high and holy celebration of Israel's rescue from Egypt would culminate in six days with the sacrifice of thousands of Passover lambs. On the 15th day of the month of Nisan, as Israel knows it, and in conjunction with the first full moon of spring, Passover celebration begins every year. Jewish pilgrims from the surrounding regions and nations were on the road to Jerusalem now. And for many, this annual trip was to celebrate their deliverance. For others, it was a trip of a lifetime. By the estimate of some historians... Jerusalem was a city of 100,000 residents 51 weeks out of the year, but during this week of Passover, the pilgrim population would swell the city of David to perhaps a million souls. At this particular point, as we come to Luke's gospel, chapter 19 this morning, just shy of 1,500 years "...had come and gone since Yahweh had parted the Red Sea, swallowed Pharaoh's army, and rescued his people, and delivered them to the promised land." Fifteen hundred years since the first Passover lambs were offered in sacrifice. The blood painted on the doorposts of their homes, and the angel of, of of death had moved swiftly and silently through Egypt... That was a night of judgment and death for some. It was a night of salvation and rescue for thousands of others. In six days from this particular moment, God Almighty would forever change the history of the world. and He would change even the celebration of Passover itself. Like all other lambs prepared for Passover... Jesus the Christ will undergo the final examination and scrutiny and will be found to be the perfect sacrificial lamb. Spotless, blameless, blemish-free. And on this first day of Passover week, Jesus enters Jerusalem not as a lamb, but as a king. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke... And find chapter 19 and just four verses for our consideration this morning, verses 37 through 40. Now, if you're looking at a copy of the scriptures that includes some of the paragraph headings, you might notice that over verse 28 it says, The triumphal entry. It's an entry of Jesus into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week. And partway through this particular paragraph, verse 37 tells us, and I want you to follow along, and if you don't have a copy of the Bible in front of you, you can read the words that are printed on the screen, but this is the word of the Lord. And in Luke's gospel, we read, "...as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord." Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher or master, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is just one little moment from a week of important events. But I want you to think with me this morning, in this passage, what is it that the stones know that many of us don't? I know they are inanimate objects, but that last statement of Jesus is arresting, and it ought to command our attention. What did these disciples see that compelled them to praise God with this kind of exuberance and joy? And what were the Pharisees missing at this particular point that they would actually say to the king rebuke your disciples censure them silence them because of what they sing in praise well look at verse 37 with me we're going to work through this passage and i want you to see first of all that we like these disciples should praise the king for his powerful acts did you notice this in verse 37 the disciples began to rejoice and praise god and very simply they're they're praising him with joy that can't be contained The word rejoice refers to any expression of joy or gladness. And throughout Luke's gospel, this theme of joy has emerged again and again. We first encounter it if we go back to chapter 2, where the angels announce the birth of the Christ. And their testimony there on the hills outside of Bethlehem is, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And so about 30 years prior to this moment, there were angelic messengers announcing there's cause for joy because of the events unfolding tonight. Then if you continue through Luke's gospel, as Jesus sent out 72 of his followers, delegating his authority, calling them to go preach and heal and cast out demons for a very brief uh, period of mission... In Luke 10, verse 17, we read that the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then in Luke 13, verse 17, as Jesus spoke a number of things, all his adversaries were put to shame, uh, Luke records, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So his birth, the delegated mission through those First disciples, the teaching ministry, the the power of his miracles have been used of God to work a great joy in the souls of these people. And it's a reminder to us that the presence and work of Jesus is always, and may I even say exclusively, the great source of our joy. And we may find joy in other things. Sometimes it's a small moment with a friend or a family member. Sometimes a cup of coffee can bring you joy. Sometimes there are experiences you have as you drive up into the mountains and you behold God's creation and whether you love the snow and all of the recreation associated with it or, or at this point many of us are ready for all that to melt away and for spring to really come and, and warmer days to arrive. Um, so those can bring us joy, but none of those things, none of those things can actually become a substitute for knowing Jesus personally. And These disciples are compelled to rejoice, and then Luke uses the word praise. They rejoice and praise God, and that denotes the joyful praise of God that is often expressed in hymns, Or even prayer. So this might be a little more formal in one sense than just the word for rejoicing. But here are the disciples, a community of faith who see Jesus and recognize this is the one. This is the one we've been hearing about. This is the one that we've seen working and their hearts are overwhelmed and they begin to praise him with joy. But did you notice that Luke also included this little description with a loud voice? You know, volume rises in proportion to excitement and enthusiasm, doesn't it? Sporting events and large concert venues are one of those vivid illustrations for us, and they immediately begin to come to mind as we read a little phrase like this. Parties and family get-togethers are often loud because of of the excitement that we feel in our souls. And I know some of you have a, a greater awareness today of a golf tournament back east than maybe anything else right now. And I'm going to confront you in your idolatry right now. Jesus is greater than the masters. Any question about that? Right. Thanks for that. Amen. But those massive events are also illustrative for us. Have you ever considered the fact, or just pondered, why do we as human beings long to be a part of some event like that? Thousands of people line those fairways and position their seats strategically around the greens that they could glimpse some of the greatest golfers in the world. And, and then they just swing that little stick against the ball and they knock it a few feet into a hole and huge cries and cheers rise up. <laughs> Sometimes you would think, well, maybe they've discovered a cure for cancer. <laughs> no, they put a little ball in a little cup. <sighs> No, there's something in us that longs for the amazing. And even when we can't do it ourselves, we want to be near it. That's why we cheer it. That's why we applaud it. That's why we'll even pay thousands of dollars to just be near an event like that. Oh, how compelling when the Christ himself is in the midst and people are recognizing him for who he is. And they cannot contain the joy that they are experiencing. Thinking back over the miracles that they've, many of them have witnessed. And the teaching that they've heard. The power of his life. God has made his dwelling among us. They cannot contain it. And so with a loud voice they erupt. What does it say about us though when we have an opportunity to worship the same king. And sometimes we can barely open our mouths. Let alone push out. Enough sound for the person next to us to hear. Some of you say, well, I don't want to discourage the people next to me. I can't sing, so I'm doing you a favor. I, I get that. And then I don't want to be critical of, of those who sometimes, because their hearts are so overwhelmed, they say, I would like to sing, but I can't. But I'm speaking more generally. Do you find Jesus so compelling that you have to open your mouth and talk about him or sing about him? Volume, in and of itself, rises in proportion to the excitement or enthusiasm or joy that we feel. Something in this king is so compelling that to praise him with quiet sobriety is inappropriate at this moment. Well, there's another thought here. They're praising him for all the mighty works that he has done. Praising him for his works... Now, for those of you who are visiting with us, our our regular sermon series is moving through the Gospel of Mark, so one of the four Gospels, and we've pushed the pause button on that for a couple of weeks, we'll come back to the Gospel of Mark, but even Luke picks up on something that all the Gospel writers uh, point us to, and that is that Jesus was continually doing mighty works. In his lifetime, apparently, or in the days of his ministry, in three years, he performed hundreds of miracles. A handful of those are recorded for us in comparison to all that he did. And Luke, as Mark does often, reminds us that those mighty works are compelling. Let me just summarize a few that Luke records in his gospel. He healed a man with an unclean demon in chapter 4. In chapter 5, Luke records there was a miraculous catch of fish that no no expert fisherman could take credit for. It was clearly a work of Jesus as God. He healed a leper, healed a paralytic, healed a man with a withered hand in chapter six. He healed the centurion's servant from a dread disease in chapter seven. In chapter 8, he calmed the storm. He cast out more demons. He healed a woman with a blood issue. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. In chapter 11, he cast out a demon. In chapter 13, he healed a woman with a disabling spirit. In chapter 14, he healed a man with edema. And in chapter 18, he had healed blind Bartimaeus. And not recorded in Luke, but mentioned by John, is the raising of Lazarus just a few days before this triumphal entry. So the mighty works that he had done throughout the region are becoming well known, and the report is widespread, and these are the acts of power which indicate that Jesus possesses the authority of heaven. This is God in flesh making his dwelling among us. This is the king of the environment, the king over disease, the king over hell and the demons and spiritual forces of darkness. This is the king over the nations, and he's arrived. And they're compelled to praise him for his mighty works. I was thinking of some of the acts of power that we see in our age, and those works often come to mind as we are praising the Lord on a Sunday morning or even other times during the week when we're not formally gathered uh, as a church family. We've been privileged to see the power of God at work in the hearts of young and old alike in this congregation, haven't we? These baptisms that we have had, Over the last several months, our great joy and more are coming, by the way. It's a powerful act of gospel conversion. We've watched God restore relationships. Those are powerful acts of gospel reconciliation. We've seen people sacrifice possessions and relationships in order to engage in gospel work right here in this particular community and I would say those are our powerful works of gospel transformation as he becomes so real to us that we say to, to use the words of that great Martin Luther hymn we let goods and we let kindred go we don't hold on to things that we don't have power to keep eternally we turn them loose in these few short days of life and we invest ourselves in the eternal work that God has called us to these are all present-day acts of power and I would be remiss if I did not even speak a word of joy in seeing Becky and Steve Belial here. Becky, who we've prayed for for months and months, that God would heal her and restore her. And he is in the process, isn't he? Welcome. His powerful works among us are reason to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. But my great sorrow this morning is that some of you actually have no eyes to see it. it's taking place around you but at this moment it's just it's no big deal the eyes of your soul are are captured with other things you have spent your emotional energy and capital in other things than jesus your eyes are filled with self or worldliness or lust or bitterness You're blinded by things in your heart and things in this world. And if you were honest this morning, you would have to say, I'm not really sure what the big deal about Palm Sunday is. Oh, my friend, ask God to give you eyes to see this king. We praise him for his powerful acts. Here's the second thing in this text, though. We praise the king for his divine mission. Look at verse 38. In Verse 38 The the specific praise of these disciples is this, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the first thought that is going to emerge from this text is that the king is actually on the mission of God Most High, and he is successful in it. He has been successful in every part up to this point. He's fulfilled every command that the Father has given him. He's fulfilled every purpose that God has sent him for, and he is about to fulfill the ultimate purposes. That word blessed, as it is used here by uh, the gospel writer, has to do with either a blessing that might be pronounced uh, upon God who has acted, so we respond saying we, we bless God, or it is often in scripture used of God's action or intervention in our lives that makes us or results in our blessing bringing us into a desired relationship with him. And the thought in this text is actually, blessed of God is this one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I want to just put this out there for you for a a moment. This is actually a quotation of Psalm 118, verse 26. And that section of Psalms was used very frequently, uh, always used by the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for that great Passover celebration and they would they would recite these Psalms as they made the journey sometimes even the people in Jerusalem would stand near the gates or even out on the roads and as people were coming in for Passover they would quote these Psalms and this would be one of them so blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord so that was often uh, sung or chanted or pronounced over the pilgrims blessed are you who've made this journey you are entering Jerusalem in the name of the Lord you're here to celebrate Passover. But these disciples adjust it with one significant word, don't they? Because they don't use the term one, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What do they say? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He has always been revealed as the king Even from his birth, it was the wise men from the east who came and said, "'Where is he who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him.' John the Baptist looked for him and said, "'Are you the one who is to come?' The Samaritans looked for him. In John 4, verse 25, the woman said to him, "'I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ.' In John 11, verse 27, Martha, in a conversation with Jesus, says, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And Matthew tells us that Christ's entrance at this particular point is the fulfillment of God's promise in Zechariah 9, verse 9, where Zechariah wrote, say to the daughter of of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Christ's coming is the culmination of thousands of years of expectation and eternity of divine purpose. Now, why does everyone desire this king to come? Well, we have to acknowledge that some were excited because they thought he was actually going to bring a political revolution. And and using that divine power, maybe he could finally give the Romans the heave-ho and send them on their way. Others were excited, thinking he was going to bring a religious, not revolution, but a a, a religious uh, kingdom. They believed that he was the great son of David. They were expecting him to take David's throne again and and bring in that great kingdom that the prophets had told of and, and foretold all through the Old Testament writings But notice what Mark says. He comes in the name of the Lord. Now in Hebrew thought, the name is not primarily a source of identification for individuals as it is for us. The name expresses something of the character or even the history of the individual. The names of God, as one author writes, are not names which man gives to God, but names given by God to himself. And those names reveal truth about him. It's part of the, not only the revelation, but it, it, it tells us who he is. The titles that God has revealed to us also do the same thing. So for this king to come in the name of the Lord means that he comes not only representing all that God is, his perfect character, his attributes, but he also comes... Representing what he has done in history and what he will do. So to come in the name of the Lord, to come in the name of God Most High, is a clear indication that he is on mission from heaven. So we're praising him because he comes for that purpose that God has given him. In Psalm 118 Verses 10, 11, and 12, the phrase, in the name of the Lord, occurs three times. Remember, that's the particular psalm that they're quoting. It's a psalm that was used each year at Passover. And in each verse, the thought is that the people of God are threatened, but there's one who arises and rescues and saves in the name of the Lord. And here he is. The king has arrived. So these disciples recognize that Christ is the blessed one, the only one sent from God to deliver. There's a second thought here. Notice this. Look at the text. This king establishes peace with God. The phrase that I'm referring to in verse 38 is peace in heaven. That's their declaration. It's a rule of peace established in a particular way that we'll get there for just a moment. Now, go all the way back to the birth of Christ. Remember again, uh, the angel testimony, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men of good will. It hasn't been that long since Christmas, has it? And, and you remember that little phrase. But now it's not peace on earth, it's peace in heaven. So there's a heavenward view. There's some kind of harmony or reconciliation that's being referred to here. Peace in heaven. Peace reigns, as another commentator writes, in heaven, for God's divine plan is being fulfilled. These disciples who sing his praises cannot begin to fathom what is about to unfold in this holy week, even though Jesus has been telling his own disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, and he's even indicated that he's going to rise again from the dead. They're still not thinking in those terms, but the king is on the mission from heaven. And the king intends to accomplish a great peace. Now we read earlier in the course of the service from Colossians 1. And I want to go back to that passage for just a moment. For in him, Paul writes, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross there's the specific mission that's in view. That's how there will be peace in heaven for rebels on earth. Rebels on earth who've sinned against the Most High God, who've gone their own way, who violate His commandments. They they don't need something to just kind of tweak or adjust their environment. They need someone to intervene in in the serious condition that they find themselves with the God in heaven. This God is angry over sin every day. His wrath is continually fueled by our rebellion, and unless someone intervenes, all rebels will have to face this holy God. But this king has entered Jerusalem on this day in order that he might die a substitute death, shed his blood on the cross, and by that very blood, as Paul says in Colossians 1, make peace with heaven. Paul also wrote in his letter to the Romans, since we have been justified by faith, that as we put our faith in this perfect king, Paul writes, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that some of you are not at peace. You wake up almost every day in turmoil. Stomach is churning. And it's way more than Tums or Alka-Seltzer can handle. You say to yourself, I feel so lost, feel so alone, feel so overwhelmed, feel so dead. You know, the solution is not another pill. The solution is not a stronger prescription. The solution is to find real and lasting peace. And it's only this king who brings it. It's only as you're in personal relationship with him that you'll know it. Some of you feel like you're on this performance treadmill and you feel like it's set a little too high. It's not that you found a pace and like I can keep up, but you feel like you are in danger of being blown off the back. It's a treadmill of trying to perform enough to measure up to meet the expectation of family or friends or the religious community that you're a part of and you feel exhausted by it, you're not at peace. But This king came, lived the perfect life you could never live, lived as your substitute, died on the cross, the death that you and I should have died by our sins. Again, the substitute, and at the end of this week will rise from the dead as the sign that God Almighty has accepted both his life and his death in the place of every sinner who believes and he says, let me get you off of that treadmill and actually give you life. There is only peace through the blood of his cross. Well, not only does the king establish peace with God, but he receives glory because he is God. Glory in the highest is the next description. Any of you have an old box of trophies like this? When we moved two years ago, we got rid of a lot of stuff and should have gotten rid of a lot more. But there's a little box like this down in a storage room of our old house. There's a trophy from a Pinewood Derby that somehow I won years ago. Even overcame the scandalous, illegal, waiting of another guy he had bored out some holes in the bottom and melted down fishing uh sinkers thank you poured them in there and his car was first down the track and everybody stood in awe and then somebody said that was unusually fast sure enough pulled it off turned it over illegal well guess who was second place (laughs) somehow Other awards and trophies collected through the years, and you've probably got things like this as well. You might even have a trophy case in your home. But realistically, do do any of those awards belong? Maybe in the Smithsonian? Maybe even in a state museum? Hmm, doubtful, isn't it? And if you think about why, it's because those awards and honors just don't really carry significant weight. I mean, in their moment, it was a big deal for you or your family or friends who were gathered around or maybe the team you were a part of, and, you know, for a brief moment, you held up some kind of trophy. But in the end, there's just no weight to it. Do you know when the Bible uses the term glory... The glory of God, the glory of the Lord. It's actually using a term that has to do with his weight. His weightiness. And for these disciples on this particular day to take that phrase, glory in the highest, they are actually pointing people's attention to the weight of this individual who's entering. They're saying he is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. Now look at the response of the Pharisees because this is what helps to, this stands, this stands in such stark contrast to the praise that it's instructive for us. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're actually saying to Jesus, censure them. Now, we won't spend a lot of time going into why they may have said this. Perhaps it's because they're worried that the Romans will think that this is some kind of political uprising, a threat that needs to be put down, and they'll all be in trouble. I think it's actually more likely that the Pharisees are simply refusing to acknowledge what this crowd is testifying to, and their track record all through the Gospels has been resistance and opposition and rejection. Even in our study in Mark, we've encountered that, haven't we? That some of them were actually spreading rumors around that the miracles that Jesus was performing were being done by the power of the devil. So they've opposed him at every turn. And I think this is mostly because they're the ones who control Jerusalem. They're the ones who are supposed to be in power of any of these crowds or worship services or or gatherings of a religious nature. And it really ticks them off that Jesus is the object of this praise. But in rebuke to these faithless ones, Jesus says, look at the text, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, what does this tell us about the glory of Christ if, because of the silence of human beings like us, inanimate objects like stones would begin to cry out? Think about that. Jesus is not saying there's some inherent life in these stones, some life force that's at work in them. No, he is revealing to us, again, truth that we've encountered all through the scriptures and is specifically stated in in the Gospels that he is the king who brings life and, because of that, deserves glory because he is God. You see, he's the object of this praise. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we read, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It testifies to the mighty power within Him, the same power that once breathed into our clay-based nostrils. Have you thought about that lately? You're made of dirt. That's what Genesis tells us. But because the Creator breathed His divine breath into us, we became living souls. But the weight and honor of this King is of such magnitude that His praises belong not only in the mouths of His disciples as He enters the city of David on this day, but in the highest realms. Glory to God in the highest. This King is of such glory that the greatest museums and temples and holy sites on earth are inadequate To honor him. The weight of his majesty and glory compels the angelic host with the cherubim and seraphim and the four living creatures and the 24 elders seated around his throne who cry, as John records in Revelation, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And to put what Jesus is saying into our context is that the gravel of our parking lot has a greater awareness of His glory than some of us seated in this room. And it's not because gravel is actually more perceptive, but rather that we, like these Pharisees, have so dissipated our souls and minds and spent ourselves with other concerns and cares, some of them even religious, but some of them absolutely secular, We've so dissipated our souls and with passions and dreams of our own making that when we come together in a place like this, we fail to perceive Jesus for who He is and the necessity of praising Him as He is. We've so immersed ourselves in our sin, our bitterness, our self-righteousness, our self-centered thoughts and ambitions that in one sense, there's no room left within us for thoughts of Christ in his glory. And if truth be told, some of our souls are so saturated with everything from Blake Shelton and Gwen Stefani that there's just no vacancy within for the sin-shattering, peace-giving, glory-establishing presence of Jesus Christ. There's no blessed is the king in your mouth today, because there really is no thought of the king in your heart. And my prayer, beloved ones, my prayer is that we would be a people who are so captivated and intoxicated with the powerful acts of Christ and so overwhelmed with the weight of his glorious person that we cannot help but to sing with one another with loud voices, to evangelize one another with humble, energized hearts, and to love and exhort one another to faithfulness in this life because Jesus is the king. And he is blessed of God most high forever. This is a great point for us to just stop and say, Lord, search my heart. What occupies my soul this morning that actually pushes Jesus to the margins? What occupies my heart this morning that actually creates a response that's more akin to the Pharisees? Maybe even seeing the the praise of others in this room was a little distasteful to you this morning. Maybe you're actually more like the Pharisees than you'd ever want to fathom. And you kind of looked around and listened this morning like, what's, what's his deal? What's their deal? And in your heart, you kind of wish somebody would bring it to a close. That's exactly where the Pharisees were. And they would be the very ones who by the end of the week would call for his death. But there were other disciples who had seen his mighty works and they'd heard his word and they were responding in faith and they were saying, oh, you are king. Not everybody in Jerusalem that week called for his crucifixion. There were faithful followers who went through confusion and turmoil and then some of them were so fearful of what might happen to them that they ran away from him. But there were those who from that imperfect position of understanding and with imperfect faith were still trusting in Jesus and this would be the greatest week of their lives. But more than all that confusion, here is Jesus on mission entering Jerusalem Not to expel the Romans, not even to reclaim David's throne, which one day will be his. But to go, unswerving, to the cross. That by his blood, he would make peace for us. And by his mighty resurrection, be exalted in glory, to glory, forever. Do you know Jesus? Do you know how much he loves you? Do you know how powerful he is? Let's bow for prayer. Lord Jesus, there are many of us who sincerely crown you And we sing with sincere faith, though it's imperfect faith, of your majesty and affirm that you are Lord of all. You're good and gracious King. You're a saving King. We also recognize that there are many competing lords and kings in one sense that that we invite into our minds, our hearts and we ask that you would expel every one of them and establish your royal, eternal dominion within us forever. Forgive us for being so enamored with our own objectives and ambitions in life or the worldliness that is all around us in its many forms, whether it be entertainment or vocation. Oh, Lord God, would you just cleanse us from all of those sins and competing interests and establish your dominion and lordship. And even as you came to save and to bless eternally, do that saving work this morning, and bless us for your namesake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.